0: This message by C.J. Mahaney was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. C.J. serves as a senior pastor for Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville. Please turn in your Bible to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 5, where this morning we will devote our attention to verses 14 and 15. So let our hearts be filled in this moment with expectation in anticipation that God will kindly draw near to us and speak to each of us through the reading and proclamation of his word. First Thessalonians 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 19th century British pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon known as the Prince of Preachers, pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, where he preached to a congregation numbering some 6,000 members. At that time, it was the largest Protestant church in the world. And Mr. Spurgeon made the following insightful observation about the local church that is just as relevant to each and every Christian in our day as it was in his day. Mr. Spurgeon said, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. In our passage this morning, we are reminded that the Thessalonian church, like all genuine churches created by the proclamation of the gospel, was an imperfect church. Does it surprise you to learn this morning that the church Paul commended in chapter 1 for, quote, their work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. The church in chapter 1 that Paul proclaimed was an example to all the believers in Macedonia. And since you are starting the letter to the church at Philippi next week. Let me welcome you to Macedonia, the church that was an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. The church he identified as having faith in God that has gone forth everywhere. Does it surprise you to learn the makeup of this church included the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak? The Thessalonian church was an imperfect church, and this should inform your expectations of Cornerstone Church, because unrealistic expectations of the church always lead to disappointment with the church. But our passage this morning will adjust our expectations if necessary. It will help us to look around and realize that we bear a striking resemblance to the Thessalonian church. More importantly, though, this passage will cause us to affirm with Mr. Spurgeon that imperfect as it is, the church, Cornerstone Church, is the dearest place on earth to us. Author David Pallison helps Introduce and acclimate us to this passage with this description of these two verses. David writes, It is a very simple passage. There are no mysteries and complexities. It says, Admonish the idle, and it means you are supposed to admonish people who are idle. And then it says you are to encourage the faint-hearted, and it means you are to encourage the faint-hearted. And it says you are to help the weak. And it means you are to help the weak. And then it says you are to be patient with everybody. And it means you are to be patient with everybody. So that's the Greek background to this passage. (laughs) It is really a really basic passage. It says exactly what it means. It means what it says and then makes us grapple with the implications. So this morning let's consider what it clearly says and means and let's grapple with the implications of this passage for daily life in the imperfect church that is created and shaped by the gospel. Paul is concerned this newly planted church that is experiencing persecution and opposition because of the gospel. He's concerned they not weaken or fracture relationally. So he's previously prayed in chapter 3 verse 12 that the Lord would make them increase in their love for one another and he exhorted them to grow in their affection for one another in chapter 4 verses 9 and 10. So this passage in chapter 5 is the practical application of his prayer and exhortation to their lives in order to deepen their affection for each other and strengthen their unity as they endure persecution. And just as oil enables an engine And all the moving parts to function effectively without excessive friction and eventual overheating, these exhortations in verses 14 and 15 enable the church to work together and to grow together. And many years ago, I learned this lesson in a painful way I remember to this day. A friend kindly loaned me a car for an extended period of time, my only responsibility. There was one responsibility and one responsibility only, and that responsibility was to change the oil. But I kept postponing, oh, I kept postponing this very simple, single responsibility, and eventually the car broke down, and the reason for its breakdown was I failed to change the oil and since that time I changed the oil in my car about every hundred miles okay I learned something I learned what I should have known I'm sure that the engine and all the moving parts that make up the engine they function effectively only 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 if fresh oil is present think of these commands as the relational oil necessary for the church to grow and work together with these commands when these commands are applied they're a catalyst they're a catalyst for the strengthening and deepening of relationships in the church and my friends if these commands are ignored or in any way disregarded conflict and division in the church in some form, is inevitable. So let's consider these specific exhortations because they are vital, they are not optional. Let's consider them not simply for the Thessalonian church, but let's consider them for cornerstone church. Notice that Paul begins with what the scholars call an appeal formula. He's transitioning to a new topic in these series of commands, and so he communicates, and we urge you brothers so Not only want you to be aware of the content of this text and the meaning of this text, there's a tone to this text and Paul is communicating his affection for this church by not only urging them, but identifying them as brothers in Christ. Paul's writing to people he knows personally. He founded this church with the proclamation of the gospel. He was prematurely separated from this church because of persecution. He was not able to return to this church he deeply cares for the members of this church he deeply cares for them he knows them personally deeply loves them vividly remembers them and his intense affection for them has has only deepened since his forced separation from them so in verse 14 he is transitioning he's transitioning from exhorting the congregation to be loyal to their leaders verses 12 and 13 to urging the church to care for one another. And he informs them that the responsibility for maintaining the relational well-being of the church does not exclusively or even primarily rest with the pastors, but is the responsibility of all the members of the church. He makes eye contact with the entire church, the entire community is to be engaged in this Task. Actually, it's the role of your pastors to equip the church for this work, not do all this work. And then Paul identifies three particular groups they are to care for in very specific ways. First, admonish the idol. It, it appears that the idol are those who are refusing to work. They are refusing to work in order to support themselves. And this exhortation seems to look back to what Paul has already addressed in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Edmund Hybert writes in his commentary, thus the command is to stir up these loafers and order them to their duty. <laughs> no loafers allowed. No loafers allowed in the church. No loafers allowed in the church who are dependent upon others for financial support. And in his second letter to this church, Paul is going to identify these guys as, quote, not busy at work, but busy bodies. So instead of working a job, they are working hard at disrupting the peace and unity of the church. So they are to be admonished, confronted, corrected. Second, encourage the faint-hearted. This exhortation appears to look back to those Paul addressed in chapter 4 verses 13 through 18. The the faint-hearted appear to be those who are anxious and disheartened by the death of loved ones in the church, and they are, it appears, grieving without hope. And this could also include those who are unsettled, troubled, discouraged, and actually in danger of giving up because of the continued persecution they are experiencing and enduring as a church. So, the church is to encourage those individuals so that they don't succumb to fear and lose heart, but instead persevere. Third, help the weak. These could be those spiritually weak that Paul was addressing in chapter 5, verses 1-11. through They were anxious about the return of Christ and what awaited them on the day of the Lord. They needed to be comforted about the day of the Lord. And actually Paul assures them in chapter 5, verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Those folks appear to be in view in this passage. It could certainly also include those who are physically weak or chronically sick as well, but the response of the church to the weak, in whatever form, is to be distinctly different from the surrounding culture. The church is to help the weak. Church is to move toward the weak, not away from the weak. The church is a place where the weak are noticed, and the church takes interest in the weak. They pay attention to the weak. They are devoted to helping the weak. Listen, Those in our culture that are ignored and avoided, the weak, even ridiculed, they are to find warm care and practical help in the church. Note the prophecy a few moments ago, you don't have to be well to be welcome. Listen, there must be no one who feels invisible in the church. There is just a wealth of grace and wisdom in this verse for the health and the well-being of the church. And this single verse, one single verse, such an economy of words filled with grace and wisdom. It teaches us about the discernment and the wisdom required to effectively serve others and in effect to avoid imitating Job's worthless friends. So so this verse, it imparts discernment. Discernment we need to skillfully serve those we love, informing us that biblical care and counseling is not one size fits all. So we shouldn't encourage the idle, but instead admonish them so they don't take advantage of our kindness and postpone getting a job. And we aren't to admonish the faint-hearted, lest we add to their burden, but instead we are to encourage them, and we are to help the weak, rather than ignore or avoid the weak, because each of these people needs a specialized form of gospel-informed care. And these aren't labels. These aren't labels that we permanently attach to folks, because as David Pallison wisely reminds us, at any one time, any one of us fits in the shoes of any of these types. So 514 is not given so that you type a person with a fixed label. View them as functional categories, as ways of thinking about whatever is going on in front of you. These are only tendencies; they are not fixed definitions. So these are not to be applied to people as labels. Yeah, Frank, lazy bum, uh, <laughs> Sally, fate heart. That's not what's going down here. That's not how these are to be applied. I like how J.I. Packer describes the church when he writes, the church is a hospital in which nobody is completely well and anyone can relapse at any time. Wise words. And notice that Paul doesn't leave the original readers with the impression that this task of caring is easy and effortless. (laughs) No, This task is difficult and challenging. And so he concludes with that reminder by saying, be patient with them all. There's no romantic version of the church being presented here. No, caring for the church, caring for the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak, it's going to require patience from the church. Patience is required in all relationships because growing in godliness, in case you haven't noticed, is a normally very slow process, is it not? No, growing in godliness is a very, very slow process. It is not a spectacular event. So, comprehending the gospel, applying the gospel, mortifying sin, Cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. It it is a process that normally takes place in small increments that at times, if not most times, are difficult to discern over a lifetime. Being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ normally takes place slowly and gradually. Therefore, patience with each other is not optional, but critical. Pastor and Reformer John Calvin reminds us of this when he wrote, We must show patience to everyone, even those with whom it is hardest to be patient, which would most likely be whoever you are thinking about as we read this quote. (laughs) After all, Christian growth is a slow process, and it takes time to mature in the faith. If we do not bear with one another, there will be no space for any of us to grow. We're not to tolerate gross sin, but we are to be exceedingly patient with each other. So, none of this is easy to do, all of this is challenging. do. And we are dependent on grace in order to apply this to our lives, whether it's admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, and being patient with everyone in the process. It takes grace-motivated effort and perseverance over a lifetime. But this makes all the difference in the daily life of the local church and the fruitfulness of the church to advance the gospel. If we neglect to do this well, well then the engine lacks the necessary oil and the friction from all the moving parts will eventually result in overheating and breakdown within the church. Listen, if you look underneath a peaceful church, and this would be a peaceful church, if you look underneath this church, you're going to find, this is what you're going to find, you're going to find people who are patient with each other. They are patient with each other privately as they follow Jesus together and do life together. A patient church is a peaceful church. And I can tell you from my time with your pastors, and this is true each and every time I'm here, they are so grateful. Your pastors are so grateful for the way you care for one another, for the way you are patient with each other. They are deeply and profoundly grateful. To be with any of your pastors for even a brief period of time is to hear some expression of their gratefulness of God Gratefulness to God for the way you care for one another and are patient with each other. Bill and I were in downtown Knoxville at the Mass General Store last night and unexpectedly I had the joy of encountering one of your small group leaders. And after we conversed together... Bill then began to describe the the difference they have made in this church, the kind of care this couple has extended to church members, the kind of patience they have displayed. And as I had the privilege of meeting them and then hearing Bill review his experience of them, all I can say is I felt the pleasure of God. So I thank God for the grace of God that is on display in this church. You are a living illustration. I look up from these verses and I look at you and I say, look at them, living illustrations of these verses applied as fruit and effect of the gospel. And notice, notice as well that given Paul's knowledge of the situation on the ground in Thessalonica, he, he's got one more exhortation, one more very important exhortation for them. Verse 15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So this exhortation categorically bans any form of retaliation by a Christian. A personal, intentional, deliberate exchange, of evil, for evil, is prohibited for the Christian. And this command is necessary for the Christian because this impulse to retaliate is resident in all of us, regardless of whether the evil done to us is significant, serious, or small and petty. And perhaps, well, perhaps this illustration will unexpectedly confirmed this tendency and temptation for you and really the radical nature of this command. came across this story a number of years ago in my reading. It is a favorite story of a particular airline pilot. He describes an elderly couple were flying first class. They were sitting behind a businessman who was enormously frustrated with them. They had been just ahead of him in line at the gate and again boarding the plane, and they moved slowly, but he was in a hurry. When the meal was served, they delayed the businessman again by having to get some pills from the overhead storage, inadvertently dropping a battered duffel bag. What's the matter with you people? He exploded loudly enough for the whole cabin to hear. I'm amazed you ever get anywhere. Why can't you just stay home? To register his anger, the man sat down and reclined his seat back as hard as he could, so hard that the elderly husband's tray of food spilled all over him and his wife. The flight attendant apologized to the couple profusely. Is there anything we can do, she asked. The husband explained it was their 50th wedding anniversary, and they were flying for the first time. Let me at least bring you a bottle of wine, the flight attendant offered. She did so. When it was uncorked, the old husband stood up and proposed a toast. And then poured the bottle over the head of the impatient businessman. (laughs) (laughs) Sitting in front of them (laughs) and everybody in the cabin cheered. Again, in light of this command, let me just clarify, if you're a professing Christian, you're not allowed to do that. (laughs) Aren't you glad somebody else is, though? (laughs) I trust we're allowed to enjoy it, but you're not allowed to do that. That's the example I'm trying to warn you about. Why does that resonate with us? Well, to some degree, because we all have that impulse. Evil for evil. This prohibition banning retaliation, listen, this is distinctly Christian. Oh my. This is a distinct transforming effect of the gospel in the heart and life of the Christian. The only explanation for someone not retaliating is the transforming effect of the gospel. And Paul not only exhorts them to break this destructive effect, this destructive cycle of evil for evil that is common in their culture by refusing to retaliate when they encounter evil, but he adds that they should also display the transforming effect of the gospel, listen, by always seeking to do good. To one another and to everyone. And you have to notice that this exhortation intentionally includes not only those inside the church, but those outside the church as well. Good to one another inside the church. And then he adds, before he concludes, and to everyone. And oh my, this would be most relevant to the Thessalonians in light of the persecution they are enduring for the gospel. I I can't help, I can't help but wonder what was the emotional reaction, what were the facial expressions of the Thessalonian church members as this passage was read to them, and particularly when they heard the words, and to everyone. Not, not only were they not to retaliate, they were to do good to those who were intentionally making their lives miserable because of the gospel. And Jeffrey Weyma, in his commentary, summarizes this well when he writes, the proper Christian response to harmful treatment from others, regardless of its source and nature, is not merely that of patience and non-retaliation, but additionally, The aggressive pursuit of what is best for the offending person and party. (laughs) Those who are followers of the crucified Christ, who have been forgiven of their sins, are by the empowering grace of God to emulate the example of Christ and love our enemies. Forgive our enemies. Bless And not curse our enemies. Pray for our enemies. And when and where appropriate, even do good to our enemies. And this attitude toward our enemies and in response to those who sin against us, what does it display? It displays before all looking on the transforming effect of the gospel. And this transformation in one's heart and life is only explainable by the gospel. And before we conclude this point, I appreciated and actually laughed out loud when I read what Gordon Fee and his commentary pointed out about this command in verse 15 when he writes, the real difficulty most of God's people have with this admonition is that God may not give such people what they deserve, but show them the same kind of mercy that He showed themselves oh I was my laughter was an expression of my conviction so how does one cultivate and maintain this patience with others this refusal to retaliate but instead do good to those who sin against us that is clearly commanded here I'm going to conclude with recommending just one practice This is is one practice that, in my experience, delivers each and every time. I've test-driven this time and time again, and this practice delivers each and every time. I commend, I recommend this practice in the fulfillment, in seeking to apply these plain and compelling passages. Here's the practice. Contemplate, daily contemplate and remind yourself of God's patience with you. Do not lose sight of God's patience with you, given your sinfulness. Whenever I am impatient with others, I have temporarily lost sight of God's patience with me. When I am impatient with others, I have temporarily lost sight of my sin, and I have become self-righteous. So I need daily reminders of God's patience with me so that I will be happily patient with others. And in his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer wisely encourages us to appreciate the patience of God. Think how He has borne with you and still bears with you when so much of your life is unworthy of Him. And you have so richly deserved his rejection. I love this. Learn to marvel at his patience. And seek grace to imitate it in your dealings with others. And try not to try his patience anymore." Oh, my friends, at some point each day, and I actually recommend at the outset and the conclusion of each day. each one of us should pause. Just pause and marvel. Marvel at the patience of God with you. Pause and marvel. Each day, at some moment, we should pause and we should marvel and we should wonder and we should think how, just how do you put up with me, Lord? Lord, I, I marvel, I marvel that you are merciful and gracious. Lord, I am so grateful that you reveal yourself in your word and confirm in my experience. I am so grateful that you are slow to anger I am so grateful. Listen, P- Packer, it is right. I, Lord, I have richly deserved your rejection. I have richly deserved your rejection, because as I survey my life, so much of my life is unworthy of you. But marvel of marvels, you. You do not treat me as my sins deserve. Oh, Lord, I marvel at your patience with me." In his excellent book, Charity and Its Fruits, Jonathan Edwards marvels. Oh, Jonathan Edwards knew what it was like to marvel at the long-suffering of God with sinners like you and me. And in this paragraph I'm going to read to you, he, he's encouraging us to marvel at God's patience when he writes, the long-suffering of God is very wonderful. He bears innumerable injuries from men and those which are very great. If we consider the wickedness there is in the world, and then continue. And then consider how God continues the world, does not destroy it, but is continually blessing it with innumerable streams of good. So, so Edwards wants us just to, to pause and marvel, to, to look out over the world and consider the opposition of the world to God. Consider the norm in our God-defying culture. I, I sought to put this into practice last night as we were walking through the downtown Knoxville, and it was wonderfully crowded, and at different times, I just paused, and I marveled. Just taking in the scene, the setting, I think accurately, Assuming that the overly majority of people I was observing are God-defying. And I then include myself and my sinfulness and the contribution I'm making. But what do I observe? God-judging? God-destroying? No. Do you know what I observe? God's Patience. And his kindness. His kindness is... No, no. Everyone is richly deserving his rejection. What are we all receiving instead? Pleasures. They're everywhere. Restaurants, one after another, providing distinct and different foods. Is that what we deserve? In light of our sinfulness? I think not. The gift of laughter, which was everywhere heard. Is that what we deserve? In light of our sinfulness, I think not. We took advantage of God's generosity. What's the name of the place we went to ice cream? Cruise Farm. Cruise Farm. Yeah, I'm standing in line at Cruz Farm. And the only challenge at Cruz Farm is what Do I order? And I'm looking at the menu and it just seems to go on for an eternity. And I'm studying everybody else because I always feel like I get out-ordered. I always feel like when I order, then some of my friend orders. Ah, I got out-ordered again. Your orders better than mine. But what 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 I'm taking in is, how kind of you to bless us in this way. How patient of you to bless us in this way countless undeserved blessings. The relationships that were present, just observing families together, friends. Oh, Lord, I marvel at your patience. You are long-suffering. You continually bless with innumerable streams of good those who do wickedness and those who defy you. And then Edwards continues, and if we consider the goodness of God to some particular populous cities, so now he's looking out over cities, how vast the quantity of the fruits of God's goodness is, which is daily spent upon them and consumed by them. And then consider that wickedness there was in these very cities. It will show us how amazingly great is his long-suffering. He is long-suffering to the sinners that he spares. And to whom he offers his mercy, even while they are rebelling against them. And especially if we consider, now he transitions to the church, God's long suffering toward his elect, many of whom live long in sin and are great sinners. Prior to my conversion, I was a great sinner. I'm sorry to say that. I say that to my shame. I love sin. I didn't just indulge. I was passionate about pursuing all manner of sin. And I wasn't just passionate about a personal pursuit. I recruited others. Sin with me. Participate with me. Let me train you how to sin. Consider how long-suffering God was with me through those years. At any moment, he could have, in his righteous wrath, say, "Enough of you. Enough of this." It would have been just. But he didn't. He had mercy. He had mercy? He sacrificed his son in my place for my sin and had mercy on C.J. Mahaney." So C.J. Mahaney should walk through the rest of his life marveling, just shaking his head and marveling, And especially if we consider God's long-suffering toward his elect, many of whom live long in sin and are great sinners, and God bears with them, yea, bears to the end, and finally is pleased to forgive and never punishes them but makes them vessels of mercy and glory and shows the mercy to them even while enemies. Oh, I love that. I love that. Oh my. Who, who here isn't familiar? I'm sure there are church members that qualify. You, you meet somebody who was converted late in life. You meet somebody who's converted late in life. They are normally a marveling individual. They have quite the perspective as they look back on decades of defying God. Only to be surprisingly saved by God through the proclamation of the gospel. I mean, those people, I notice, they do a lot of marveling. They walk through the rest of their life marveling. Why do they marvel? They know. They have richly deserved wrath. And instead, God intervened. Somebody shared the gospel. And they who were dead in sin were made alive in Christ, were forgiven of their sin. Their life is transformed. And God not only forgave them of their sin, he gave them the gift of himself ultimately and himself for eternity. Oh yeah, they are already marveling. Let me encourage all of us, beginning today, don't postpone this. Begin to build into your life. You don't, you, can do, you don't have to draw attention to yourself. You don't have to, do, you know, in the middle of a meeting, oh, could you just pause for a second? I'd like to, I'd like to marvel. No, you, you don't, you're not doing this to impress anybody. You can do this in any setting, and nobody's even aware you're doing this. If it's appropriate, yeah, invite everybody to marvel with you. But don't let a day end that you don't pause at some point in the day and just... Marvel, marvel at his patience with you, and then look up for marveling and seek to imitate his patience in dealing with others, including those who have done you evil. We don't give people who sin against us what they deserve. Because God hasn't given us what we deserve. Instead, he graciously planned, he patiently executed the punishment of his innocent son in my place. Condemned, he stood. Experiencing the righteous wrath of God, I deserved in fullness for my sin, satisfying that wrath on my behalf because of my sin, so that I might receive grace I so obviously don't deserve. And this should leave me marveling. Those who marvel at this often overlooked attribute of God, his patience, his long-suffering, they're patient with the idle and the faint-hearted and the weak. By the grace of God, those people refuse to retaliate when sinned against, instead doing good to those who have sinned against them. And because of the mercy and patience of God, the imperfect church becomes the dearest place on earth. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we want to get started right away with this practice of pausing and marveling. There is simply nothing more important or appropriate we can do right now than individually and collectively pause. We don't just pause. We pause to marvel and we marvel at your patience, your long suffering, your mercy. You have not treated us as our sins deserve. Instead, you treated your son as he did not deserve. Placing our sins on him so that we might be forgiven of our sins and freed now from fear of future wrath, anticipating an eternity of beholding the glory of God in the face of the risen Christ of the cross. How can we not marvel? So we marvel. We pause and marvel. And now we sing and marvel for you have been patient with us and merciful to us. May we now, by your grace, imitate that as we interact in our small groups and with our friends in this church so that we might reflect the transforming effect of the gospel and that this imperfect church might truly continue to be the dearest place on earth. All by your grace all because of the cross, and all for your glory, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.